Welcome to the Homesteaders of America podcast, where we encourage simple living, hard work, natural health care, real food, and building an agrarian society. If you're pioneering your way through modern noise and conveniences, and you're an advocate for living a more sustainable and quiet life, this podcast is for you. Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm your host, Amy Fuel, and I'm the founder of the Homesteaders of America organization and annual events. If you're not familiar with us, we are a resource for homesteading education and online support, and we even host a couple of in-person events each year, with our biggest annual event happening right outside the nation's capital here in Virginia every October. Check us out online at homesteadersofamerica.com. Follow us on all of our social media platforms and subscribe to our newsletter so that you can be the first to know about all things HOA. That's short for Homesteaders of America. Don't forget that we have an online membership that gives you access to thousands, yes, literally thousands of hours worth of information and videos. It also gets you discount codes, an HOA decal sticker when you sign up, and access to event tickets before anyone else. All right, let's dive into this week's episode. Welcome back to the Homesteaders of America podcast. This week, we have Grace with us. Welcome to the podcast, Grace. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you guys might know her as the shepherdess. A few months back, maybe even a year ago now, my husband and I actually found her online and we were watching some of her videos, maybe like some of you. And I was just like, hey, I like this girl. She's my kind of people. I'm going to keep watching her. So welcome, Grace. How about you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Absolutely. So I'll give you a 1,000 foot view of my farm here. So I'm in Northeast Texas on 30 acres, currently leasing the land from my family. I am running Dorper Sheep as a primary enterprise for my farm business and sheep are really ideal for my small acreage setup. Alongside them, we run beef cattle as a complementary as well as the laying hens. Those aren't really a for-profit operation, you know, unless we're speaking in terms of the land. But yeah, that's a little bit of a 1,000 foot. Yeah. Awesome. So how'd you get started in sheep? A lot of people are getting sheep. I feel like they're mm. kind of the next, we, we went through the chicken deck, you know, decade. Now we're, we moved into milk cows. Now I kind of feel like sheep are the next thing, which is one of the reasons I'm kind of having a few people about sheep on the podcast. So why don't you talk a little bit about how you got started with them? Absolutely. So I got into sheep out of a pursuit of beef cattle. So I'll go back to when we, we sort of launched the farm as it was in 2018, we moved to the country. And by we, I say my family. And we moved to the country from suburban America back in 2018. We had an agricultural exemption on the land and we wanted sort of a low maintenance mini cow, so to speak, to put on the land and maintain that exemption. We had never owned any four-footed livestock before. We had done chickens, but we jumped in with, with all feet with the sheep. We bought a flock of 35 and we struggled a lot up front. And when I say we, I was not involved in the agricultural process at this time. I wanted to ignore it with all of my heart. So for the first two years, I just sat on the sidelines and watched these sheep struggle and struggle and struggle. And in 2020, I realized probably what a lot of your listeners have realized themselves. And that's just the fragility of a food system we all rely on for three meals a day. And I said, I can't sit on the sidelines. I've got to participate in some solution, even if it's not huge. I've got to do something. And I do have a resource here in this family land. But I wanted to do beef because we had struggled with sheep. They have a few nuances about them that just make them difficult to raise. And so I 
jumped in to researching the process of raising beef cattle and stumbled upon a book called Salad Bar Beef by Joel Salatin. And that was a book that blew my mind wide open to this concept of regenerative grazing. How Mm. with this grazing management, you can see two times forage yield in your first year. You can see um, just a rapid revitalization of soil health. And then the third element was your animals are healthier because you are moving them away from their parasites before they can graze back over them and become sick again. And that was our primary Mm -hmm. struggle with sheep was the parasite management. And with knowledge, I'm a firm believer that with knowledge comes accountability. And I had the knowledge to put a system in place that would save those dying sheep in front of me. And so I was like, okay, now I have to do something with sheep. (laughs) And so I said, okay, for six months, it's going to take six months before my beef cattle land anyway. So I'll just practice with the sheep and see if this grazing thing really works and they get any healthier or if they just keep dying and they all die by the time my my beef arrives. So I, I put the grazing management in place with the sheep and just within a matter of 60 days. I mean, their health did a complete 180. Sheep we expected to, an entire flock really, we expected to die over summer, just entered a season of new life as the um, autumn came. And as I was watching this, it was my passion. The grazing management was my passion. And and as much as my family was supporting me, I realized this was my thing. And I'm also, from a professional standpoint, business is my background, business is my, Mm -hmm. my thing. And I began to see the profit in grass-based agriculture. And the reality is, is that sheep, if you can manage them and get their nuances under control, they are about, for me, in my context, they were about four times more profitable than my grass-fed beef plan Wow! as far as revenues go. And so I said to my family at that point in time, I said, I want to buy this flock and I want to pursue it as a for-profit business opportunity for myself. So they sold me the flock, um, the flock I wanted to drowned in the river (laughs) I bought and uh, I hit the ground running. I I worked at a lease agreement for that 30 acres that I'm working on now. And the rest is, well, kind of history, I guess. Yeah. Three years isn't really history yet, but (laughs) yeah, (laughs) you've done a lot in three years. My goodness. That's amazing. And it, I think it shows people that it's totally doable, like especially new homesteaders who just get started. I mean, it, it took you no time to get those sheep going and Um, Obviously, you've learned a lot during that time, too. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the sheep that you have and what their purpose is and how you kind of use them for your business? Absolutely. So they are a dorper sheep. They're a hair sheep and not a wool sheep. And they are a meat sheep. So their primary product is meat. And hair sheep, a lot of your listeners probably are familiar with. But being that wool is, unfortunately, I mean, in the mainstream, it doesn't hold a lot of value. So the hair element, the sheep shed their coat instead of having to be shorn. And that just minimizes a lot of the financial liability that comes with raising sheep. Um, And then the meat quality is different on a hair sheep versus a wool sheep. A lot of people will say, I've tasted sheep before. It just got this really gamey flavor. It's really gross. Hair sheep are different in that the meat is a little more palatable, especially to an American consumer who it's not part of their uh, daily life. And so the meat from a Dorper sheep just tastes like a really high quality beef as far as um, my family has tasted it. Wow. That's awesome. And so, okay, I didn't ask this in the beginning, but where are you located? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. We are in Dallas. We're northeast of Dallas. So okay. about an hour east. Right. And so that might, so a lot of times we have people ask if they don't know if we haven't said it in a podcast episode. So that kind of helps people generalize like uh, 
regenerative agriculture. So that actually, see, this opens up a new question. How does that work in Texas? So what is your climate like there? You know, in your YouTube videos, I wouldn't have guessed Texas because your pastures look amazing. Mm -hmm. And so can you break that down a little bit, what that looks like for your area? And if it works, does it work like Joel Salatin's method or have you had to use some different methods? So every farm is different and I've really had to adapt to in a sense, farm for myself. I had to think for myself in a lot of ways. But as far as the climate question, just getting straight down to it, we're on, we're about an hour away from the Louisiana border. So we are very wet in comparison to the rest of Texas. We're about 47 inches of average annual rainfall. So we're, we're not really typical Texas, Texas weather at all, mm-hmm. or what people think of. So yeah, so you're, you're pretty good with regenerative type things. All right, let's talk a little bit about your, you mentioned you have a business background. So what was the point that you realized, where, where did you kind of figure out that your sheep were going to make more than your beef cattle? Because there are a lot of people going into sheep. I'm like, we're getting into sheep for dairy, but Mm -hmm. most people get into sheep for meat. So kind of break that down a little bit. Right. So from a business background, I just sort of did some preliminaries. I set a business plan and I did market research, which it's a bit humbling because a local rancher actually encouraged me to do something that I should have done first as a business person. But market research is essentially thinking backwards in the process and finding your customer first. And marketing, there is the four original principles of marketing, which is product, price, place, and promotion. Well, you need to think of place and promotion first um, if you're if you're going into things for profit. So for me, that process looked like of realizing I could make more from sheep than beef was the first and most fundamental thing I did was I just toured the farmer's markets in a one and a half hour radius surrounding my farm. And as I was doing that, I was just scouting it out. Okay, how many people are selling grass-fed beef? Well, the market was saturated. There was about two mm. or three vendors at every farmer's market that were selling really good quality grass-fed beef and they had a clientele. And you know farmer's markets, I mean, people are loyal. And mm. as I was doing that, I, I was also looking at the people that were selling sheep or lamb. And It was kind of touch and go. There was one or two here and there, but I was also looking at the price per pound on that lamb. And for example, ground lamb was at $13 a pound, standard baseline average. Ground beef was at $8 a pound. And so I kind of thought to myself, okay, on a local level, there may be an opening here. Also, because of my digital marketing background, I started to do things like surf Facebook pages where I knew I could plug my farm or what I had to offer and realized that there was not only a demand for meat, but there was also a demand for sheep, period. Mm-hmm. There was, There is a lot of demand in the small-scale farming arena, and people are just realizing, hey, I can do a lot more with sheep on two or three acres than I can with a beef. You know, you have to have a breeding pair and then... You know, at the breeding pair, you're already maxed out on two acres. Mm-hmm. But if you have a sheep on two acres, I mean, you can get a breeding pair and then run three additional, you know, moms aside from it. So all of that was culminating in this market research process. And I had lined out for myself probably about three different platforms that I could run sheep through, all while realizing simultaneously beef was going to be a harder push. Not impossible by any means, but if I was looking for profitability and I was looking for a viable income, sheep was going to be a faster track to that. Mm -hmm. Oh, one more thing. I'm sorry. One more thing (laughs) in that market research was the conventional market pricing. Now, I advocate direct to consumer 100%, but I did just as a matter of business, go take a look at the conventional markets for beef and sheep. And in that, in doing that, I realized on the hoof, Sheep were bringing twice per pound what beef were bringing. 
And then I delved a little deeper, if people watch my YouTube channel, I delved a little deeper into sort of the dirty politics that surrounds the beef yeah. industry and realized, okay, the sheep industry doesn't necessarily have that stranglehold. And while I advocate for fighting back, I mean, there's a little bit of opportunity right. in the small ruminant sector. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, the other thing that someone told me once, uh, which made our decision, you know, cause we were thinking about, do we get uh, another dairy cow or do we go try a sheep, dairy sheep? Not that this, this episode is not about dairy, but one of the things that made me make my decision was a lot of sheep have twins where most cows don't, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, some people were saying to me like, well, you can, you have two babies you can sell or two babies you can butcher versus, you know? And so that was a big deciding factor for us too. And getting sheep that I've really kind of enjoyed exploring. So, mm-hmm. well, let's talk um, a little bit about uh, your pasture setup. Uh, so you have, you, you're running your farm, like a regenerative farm. How does that work with sheep? Are sheep harsher on your pasture than a cow or is it the opposite? Are they better on your pasture than a cow? That kind of helps people make a decision too. Absolutely. So I would say it is equal and it just comes down to management period and getting an understanding. So people, cow people will complain about sheep that they'll tear up the grass by its root systems and all of that. That typically only happens if you let them eat the grass down to the root systems. But just from a general standpoint, sheep make use of the opposite of what cows will make use of. And so if you're running in a regenerative setting where you are monitoring, managing, and moving those animals, I really can't speak a lot to the amount of damage. The only damage will be caused by me simply not moving those animals off of a patch of grass fast enough. Yeah. Um, Now, in regard to like their feces. So one of the reasons we Mm -hmm. love sheep is because they obviously have smaller feces. And so can you talk a little bit about that and the difference and how that works with your ground? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the cows, you'll have a big cow pie right in the middle of the pasture there. And the sheep have like these little, okay, it's really gross, but what are those um, caramel candies? Oh yeah, like the little milk duds or whatever they're called. Yeah. Kind of like milk duds or whoppers. um, Is it whoppers? Is that what you're thinking about? Yes, yes. Okay. I'm sorry. That was gross, but that's what (laughs) they look like for people who are new to sheep and uh, cows. That's the difference pumpkin pie versus whoppers. Yep. And so it's a cleaner experience for small acreage. You're, you're stepping out into your backyard and it's your backyard. So when you've got those sheep droppings, it's a cleaner experience. As far as the breakdown goes, this is an interesting thing. A lot of people complain about flies and cows simultaneously. Mm-hmm. You don't have that problem with mm-hmm. the sheep droppings at all. And so mm-hmm. that is a big pro. As far as monitoring the breakdown, I have not monitored side by side, like which one breaks down faster at all. But there are a lot of pros with respect to the sheep over cows in that respect. For sure. For sure. Especially on small acreage. I think a lot of people are waking up to the fact that, you know, they wanted, you know, a steer or they are wanted a milk cow, whatever, whichever option they wanted to go with. And they're realizing, okay, well maybe that's a little bit too much for my property, but hello sheep. You know, it's something people never thought about. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you'll talk a little bit now, there are different size sheeps, which I found out on my own. when I, when I got mm. sheep. And so can you talk a little bit about the differences in sheep and their sizes and what's good for what size property? Yeah, absolutely. So in the hair sheep realm, I'm working with the Dorper, which is the largest sheep. I'm doing that because in a for-profit situation, I'm monitoring carcass size and, and its potential to 
put on a little bit of, of meat that I can sell at market. But then you've got the Katahdin sheep, which is the mid-sized in the hair breeds, and the St. Croix, which is the smallest of the hair breeds. And so those are your three on the hair sheep spectrum. Being, I have a limited amount of experience with the wool sheep. I can't speak a lot of to those. But that is the size spectrum within the hair sheep breed. Yeah. So typically, how big do your Dorbers get in weight? So the Rams are about 250 and the ewes are about 150. Some of my big girls are a little bit bigger than that, but that's generally where they're at. Okay. Awesome. So I'm going to rewind a little bit. You were talking about in the beginning about your sheep dying, this flock that your family got. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you said it was for, for parasites. So can you talk a little bit about that? Um, How parasites, you know, sheep are very fragile to parasites and how we can kind of overcome that. Yeah, absolutely. So the parasite life cycle, the one that you're going to deal with probably the most intensely is the barber's pollworm. And how it happens is basically it comes out through their feces, it lands on the pasture and within, if it's that cool, breezy weather, within about three to five days, those parasites have crawled up the grass and have the capacity to be re-ingested by the grazing animal and reinfected. So with the grazing moving within a day or two in those peak seasons removes a lot of the risk of reinfestation. And that was really what broke it for us in the cycle. Now I do have to be sensitive. I do still use conventional deworming methods. So I'll be sensitive about speaking to that. And I, but I want to also be honest about that. Mm -hmm. We do still use conventional dewormer on a small acreage, but the grazing management was what really did it. Because what happens is once you leave that pasture paddock within 45 days, about half of the parasite load, half to three quarters has just died naturally. So if you give that paddock 45 days of rest, you have basically minimized your exposure right then and there. And that's really what broke it. I said within about a 60-day time frame, our flock had done a 180 and that was that was really it. That's amazing. Yeah. Hey guys, thanks for joining us for this week's episode. We're going to take a quick break and bring you a word from one of our amazing sponsors. McMurray Hatchery officially started in 1917. Murray McMurray had always been interested in poultry as a young man and particularly enjoyed showing birds at the local and state fairs. Nowadays, the hatchery is still completely through mail order, but they offer way more than ever before. From meat chicks and layer hens to waterfowl, ducklings, goslings, turkeys, game birds, juvenile birds. They even have hatching eggs and a whole lot of chicken equipment. Make sure you check out our Home Center of America sponsor, McMurray Hatchery at mcmurrayhatchery.com and get your orders in today. And don't forget to stop by their booth at the 2023 HOA event. Um, now you have some stuff on your website, like you have starter packages, right? That people can kind of go to and see what you use. Um, we'll link all that information, obviously, in the show notes. But I know for me, it was helpful because there's not a whole lot of sheep information online. And so, you know, when we're looking for, I'd like to prepare ahead of time um, with certain products because you never know what you're going to get into with any kind of livestock. I did this with our uh, cow as well. So what are some tools and some vitamins or minerals or, or, you know, wormers or antibiotics that you like to keep on hand for your sheep? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, right. So I keep a general dewormer on hand for the barber's pollworm and a general dewormer on hand for coccidia. And then I also keep um, what's called a vitamin B on hand. This is just 
a vitamin that you can give. It's very fast acting and it just deals with any stressful situation that the sheep has come through. I have this on standby 100%. And then I also keep an iron supplement on hand for sheep. Being that parasites and depending on the season and the life stage are very difficult on sheep, if you give them an anemia supplement, an iron supplement, it can really put them back on their feet really, really fast. So those are my top four that I keep on hand at all times. And for lambing, you're going to want to keep something on hand. It's a, a supplemental colostrum, and that's something that has just saved a lot of lambs on my farm. I have a 15-piece essentials kit that's really something, I call it my first aid kit for sheep, and those are the 15 pieces I'm jumping for or the 15 pieces that have historically on my mm -hmm. farm saved life when yeah. it's on the brink but those are my top four. Yeah. Yeah. And those are things that a lot of people don't think about. You know, a lot of people jump into sheep or cows or whatever, and they have nothing. So I know for us, when we first got our sheep, I had so many questions because they suddenly they had like this mm -hmm. respiratory stuff from being shipped, even just a short distance. And mm -hmm. I had zero idea what to do, which I'm sure most livestock owners, you know, I knew how to, how to treat a cow just because I grew up around it, but I wasn't quite sure about sheep. And so we've done a lot of research, um, a lot of reading and to kind of figure out mm -hmm. the health of sheep. So are there any books or anything that you recommend to new sheep owners or future sheep owners that they can kind of look through? Yeah, absolutely. So I would recommend the stories guide to raising sheep. And that was, that's going to give you an overview of everything. It's, it's kind of a scary book to look at because, you know, you start to get paranoid. Um, but if anything weird is happening to your sheep, that's just going to be the baseline, mm -hmm. the baseline. The interesting thing about my journey personally is that I did not read any sheep books until maybe about last year. I yeah. read pasture management books. And that really, and I want to stress that because that was something that really improved the health of our animals on whole, on whole. Um, as far as the conventional stuff, we just touched base with local ranchers, local people who were raising the same thing as us in the same climate. And we just, there were so many generous and gracious people who said, okay, this, we raise sheep in this climate. We raise goats in this climate. This is what you're going to expect. And this is really what we do to handle them. So if you can in any way touch base on a local level, Somebody who's going to help you locally is just going to be your lifeline. Yeah. Now you're working on a book too, right? I am. I do have the basics. People watching, for people watching, it's the basics of raising sheep. This is a paper copy of the front side. This is going to be basically the kindergarten and first grade for sheep owners. And I think in that terms, because, you know, in kindergarten and first grade, the most important thing that you can do for an education is get a visual idea of what problems are and get advice on how to fix them. So basically in that book, it's the good, the bad, and the ugly of our first five years with sheep. All of the problems we encountered, how we treated them, um, how we brought a lot of sheep out of some difficult situations that were caused, and I have to be honest, that were caused simply because we were beginners. We didn't know how to watch for problems. We didn't know how to treat them in their early stages. Um, but this book gives a lot of real good pictures of sh sick sheep, healthy sheep, and what to watch for in between and how to treat them um, should you choose to do that. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's super necessary for right now. So I'm glad that's super cool you have a, a cover on it. When will that be published? When will it be out for people to buy? Lord willing, we're looking at the middle of August. and It's okay. going to be hopefully a ready-to-ship product, so you'll have it in hands um, shortly after you purchase. Okay, and do people have the option to pre-order it yet or... No pre-orders yet. I'm still waiting on a printing date. Um, probably by the end of this month, 
if you follow okay. me on Instagram or Facebook, I'll send out more updates. Yeah. So what we'll do guys is we'll link her website below and um, you can kind of get updates there if you don't already follow her online, depending on when this recording comes out. Um, if it's come out uh, after the book comes out, then we'll obviously grab that link below and share it. All right. I've got a couple more questions for you and then I will let you go. You've already been like a wealth of information in such a short amount of time. So you are, you said you have 30 acres. Are you running your sheep on all of those 30 acres or or you only have certain spaces of that acreage for your sheep? So I only have about 23 acres available for the sheep. The remaining seven is front yard, backyard. We'll use it in emergencies like drought or where we just need to stretch pasture in low rainfall. Last year was a bit of a difficult year, so we used the full 30. Um, but cross-fenced pasture for sheep is 23. Okay. All right. And so somebody getting started with sheep, what's the acreage necessary for sheep. Like a lot of people have one acre, two acre, three acres, kind of talk to the one to five acre range and what they can kind of expect, obviously, depending on what kind of property they have. Yeah, absolutely. So this is neat because I actually received a comment from a viewer the other day. She's running an acre and a half and she has six dairy sheep wow. that she does all grazing on that acre and a half. Now she manages it and she does do some plantings and she really works it. But that's just the potential that you have if you have your rotation and some good pasture management. So per acre, I'm always asked sheep per acre. If you're working on one to five acres, you can do about two sheep per acre if you have good grass. And that is something you can grow. You can grow your flock from there, but I'd start with two per acre. And the reason I say this is because if somebody's on three or, or four acres, you know, that is six ewes and a ram. Well, what happens in nine months? Right. They twin or they lamb at a rate of one and a half, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you have a flock of 10 or 15. Yeah. So the capacity to grow really fast is there. But starting small will allow you to really manage those problems on a small scale before those babies start dropping and um, you have large scale flock. Yeah. And that's really encouraging, hopefully for you guys to hear, because a lot of our homesteaders that follow us, they have small acreage and they think I will never be able to have my own meat source outside of rabbits, right? I will never be able to have my own dairy source outside of a dairy cow or goats. And a lot of people are, they shy away from goats, you know, cause they can be a little bit crazy, mm -hmm. which brings me to my next quest question. <laughs> Sheep can be a little bit crazy too, right? <laughs> yeah, but they're not as bad as goats. No, they're not as bad as goats. And so, you know, when we, so let me tell you my quick story. When we brought our sheep home, now these were very well handled sheep. Like they were very loved, but, and they, you know, they, they respected polywire and everything. But when we got them here and we put them in polywire, they jumped the polywire every single day because they had no idea where they were or what they were doing. So I wonder, you know, if you could tell our listeners, like, what what is the temperament of a sheep? What should you not do? What should you do? Kind of like that. Right. So when people purchase sheep from me, I'm always like, just don't get too intensive with your rotation right up front. Let them get used to you and let them get used to where they're at. Whether that means you let them graze the whole thing for a little bit, just mm -hmm. let them do that. Bucket train them. Put some pellets, alfalfa pellets in a bucket and make them understand the, the sound of your voice and just calm down. And then put them in a paddock. Then put them in a paddock. So the sheep's temperament is when they trust you, they will trust you. And when they don't, they absolutely won't. But it's like with anything. And the neat thing with sheep is that the relationship builds over time. Just give them some time to get to know you mm -hmm. um, and adjust. Yeah. And we just got our sheep just a couple of months ago. Like it hasn't even been... Mm -hmm. 
it hasn't even been six months. I think it's only been three months maybe and totally different than the first week that we brought Mm -hmm. them home. Now they, you know, they don't even need to be haltered to be taken anywhere. They just Mm -hmm. follow you and they're the sweetest things. And it's true. What you said, you nailed it. You said, Mm -hmm. when they trust you, they trust you. And they really do all in trust you if if you are trustworthy. And Mm -hmm. so my husband prides himself now. He's like, he just shakes the little jar and they just come and he's fine. And I'm like, ugh. Look at you. Because I'm always with the baby, right? Like I'm always with the baby and they're supposed to be my sheep and they haven't gotten to know me very well yet. <laughs> and so it's funny. He's really cute about it. But well, anything else you want to share with us today before we get off of here? You can find me at shepherdess.com and as well on YouTube um, and Instagram. I will re- be releasing that book, Lord willing, at the end of this month. But I just really want to encourage people out there who are starting. You, you can start with a bit of an inferiority pl- complex, but the reality is, is whether you've been in this for two years, two months, two weeks, or two decades, you're always going to feel the same way. I mean, the more you learn, the more you realize you have to learn. So don't really let the fact that you don't know anything yet hold you back. We are at a place where we need more people to do this on a small scale. I mean, small food is going to be the backbone mm-hmm. of our nation. And we've seen a taste of that, what happens when when big food fails us. Um, but I just want, on a personal level, I'm going to say God's grace is 100% sufficient. He can use somebody who has no experience in agriculture. But if you rely on him for wisdom, I mean, you're going to get it. He promises to give it. And you can go places um, that naturally you would never have the ability to go in yourself. Yeah. That's one of the things I love about sheep is they've taught us the imagery of the Bible. Like it's just so, Mm -hmm. it's so interesting to just sit back and watch these sheep and your relationship with them. And it's truly been an incredible experience, not just on the physical aspect and farming aspect, but just as a believer on the the spiritual Mm -hmm. aspect as well. It kind of brings the Bible to life when you own sheep and it's super special. It does. And it's interesting because as a shepherd or a shepherdess, you're like, when your sheep feel good, you feel good. And when yes. your sheep feel bad, like you feel horrible. Mm-hmm. And it's just neat to think about that in respect to like our relationship with the Lord, that he is so deeply connected to us that he hurts when we hurt and he's happy when we're happy. And that's just, you're, you're, you hit it. You just learn yeah. so much. That's, that's awesome. I'm, I'm super happy that you feel that way too, because you know, not all shepherds and shepherdesses feel that way. They're like, that's oh, sheep. It's mutton. You know, it's like mm-hmm. whatever, but it's awesome. Mm-hmm. All right, Grace, thank you for joining me today. This was a lot of good information. We hope that you guys listened and were, I'm sure you were taking notes. Every podcast episode, everybody's like, oh, I learned so much. And um, so check her out on YouTube, like she said, on her website. We'll link all of that information below. Uh, if you have any questions, I'm sure you, know, you can certainly ask them. Um, one more thing. Yeah, I'm going to be at Homesteaders of America, Lord willing, in October. So if anybody Yay. is going to be there... I would love to say hi. Okay. Awesome. So you guys heard that she's going to be HOA too, which is funny because you were actually on my short list for speakers to reach out to you this year, but I filled up before I ever got to you. So maybe next year, right? Maybe next year. year. (laughs) All right. Until next time, guys, have a great one and happy homesteading. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to this week's Homesteaders of America episode. We really enjoyed having you here. We welcome questions and you can find the transcript and all the show notes below 
or on our Homesteaders of America blog post that we have up for this podcast episode. Don't forget to join us online with a membership or just to read blog posts and find out more information about our events at homesteadersofamerica.com. We also have a YouTube channel and follow us on all of our social media accounts to find out more about homesteading during this time in American history. All right, have a great day and happy homesteading.